Well, peace be with you. Well, last week we began to journey through the book of Esther in the Old Testament, and one of the big themes of Esther is providence. So the providence of God. So what is that? So theologian John Calvin said that providence is like the invisible hand of God, right? So you can't, you know, see it, but this is God, God directing his people, guiding his people, and providing for his people through the various ups and downs of life. And so this is a major theme in the book of Esther, and in fact, one of the things people comment on is that you can't, you, you know, you can't even find the name God in the whole book. Like, what's with that? And so I think this is actually on purpose, and so it's a challenge to us as readers. As we go through this story, are we able to see the invisible hand of God even when God is not named? Are we able to see and perceive what God is doing in the world when there's no dramatic miracles or anything like this? And so it is about providence, the invisible hand of God. But within that, there's actually kind of a subtext, and what it is is the word courage. Okay, so today we are focusing on courage. And so there was an introduction last week, and we went through chapters 1 and 2. Uh, but this is the part of the story where Esther has now become queen... And she is uh, required uh, to, well, she's not required to, she has a choice. Is she going to go to the king uh, at the behest of her adoptive father, Mordecai, uh, to intervene and provide deliverance and help for her people who face annihilation? So is she going to try to hide or is she going to come forward and try to be courageous to help her people? So we get to that critical part of the story uh, today. And so she is uh, needful of courage. Uh, But what is it? Right? It's one of those words, okay, it's, it's good, it's positive, we want to be courageous, we like it when we see courage in other people. And so I've put together a few definitions. Here's the first one. Um, Ace Collins, this is actually quoted from a, uh, this is kind of a generic, uh, this is a generic definition that he takes and adapts. Courage is not knowing what is around the corner, but going there anyway. I think that's helpful, okay. There's, a, there's an unknown dimension to it, okay. Next one. Uh, Max Lucado in his book, Fearless, says, real courage embraces the twin realities of current difficulty and ultimate triumph. I like that too, you know, courage, we need that when we're in the midst of a difficult situation. Um, But at the same time, we're going to do that because we know that there is triumph coming. Next. Neil Anderson and Timothy Warner say, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is resolute action in the presence of fear. I think that gets at something too. Sometimes there's you know, fear that we have, and we need to act. We need to say or do something in the midst of, of this situation. Next. Timothy Keller, in his devotional on the song, Psalms, says, Where does courage come from? Primarily, it comes from wanting something more than your own safety. And I think that really gets to the heart of something important. Wanting something more than your own safety. And so when you think of these things, when you look it up in the dictionary, I think kind of a, a good place for us to land is this. Courage is... Next slide. Doing the right thing even when there is danger or difficulty. Right? So it's one thing to, it's one thing to, to have these thoughts about, okay, uh, I want to speak the truth boldly, or I want to you know, uh, speak against some great injustice in the world. It's one thing to have those thoughts. It's another thing to actually say and do things uh, that advance what your beliefs uh, presuppose. Right? So courage isn't courage if it's on the couch. Courage isn't courage if it's on the couch. So there's something about courage, beliefs, thoughts, putting them into action, even in the face of danger or uh, difficulty. Okay, so with that in mind, let's set the scene for today's text. So last week, we read the first two chapters. Uh, We began in the Persian court of King Ahasuerus, and this is in the 5th century before Christ. So this is a long time ago. Christ, 2,000 years ago, this is the 5th century before that. 
Queen Vashti was rejected for refusing to come to the king. After a long and surely torturous process, Esther, uh, a young Jewish woman, uh, was promoted to queen. Uh, Esther, as we learned, was the adoptive daughter of a man named Mordecai. And Mordecai is someone who will come up in the story more and more, including in today's text. Um, but he encourages her to hide her Jewish identity. Is there some sort of anti-Semitism going on, uh, perhaps? Uh, and then at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. And so uh, the word of this gets to the king. He writes down Mordecai's name in the royal records. And that's where we are at as we begin chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up, that is great. Uh, we are going to put the words on the screen uh, this week. And we begin at um, uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Let's get into the text. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Okay, so <clears throat> this is going to set the scene for the next two chapters, okay? So um, we don't know why King Ahasuerus promotes Haman. So we're not told why, so we're kind of wondering about that. Uh, you should also know that he is here introduced as the, uh, the nemesis in the story. And so as we will talk about in a couple weeks, uh, Jewish people today in synagogues continue to read this book of Esther on the festival of Purim, uh, Purim, which celebrates the deliverance of the people. And as the rabbi reads it through, whenever the name Haman is read, people boo or hiss, right? It's kind of a fun way to involve everyone in the congregation in the story. But why is he such a nemesis? Well, because he does certain things that we're about to learn about. But the key is, look, at it says Haman the Agagite. Okay, there's something in there. So <clears throat> way back in 1 Samuel 15, we learn about a king Agag, okay? And he is an enemy of God's people and Saul. Now, we know that Mordecai, from what we've already learned in Esther, is, you know, from the house of Saul. And so Haman is, is from the house of King Agag with the Amalekites. The Amalekites are historic rivals of, of the Jewish people. And so what I think is happening here is that this is kind of like a, a modern rematch, between the Amalekites uh, and, and the Jews, right? And so Haman, you know, fr from you know, the house of Agag, and then uh, Mordecai from the house of Saul. And so uh, we will see that play out. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman for, or because, the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Okay, so Mordecai doesn't bow down. So the king has elevated Haman. Hey, people got to bow to him to show him respect. Uh, Mordecai won't do it. Now, why? Some people have said, well, he worships God, not people. Well, you know, this isn't an act of worship, and Jewish people were allowed to, you know, show reverence to people. Um, some of the rabbis uh, have suggested that maybe Haman had some sort of false god with him, and so, you know, Mordecai didn't want to bow to that. I think really the real reason is most likely because of this ancient rivalry, okay? Verse 3, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So there again, right, that's probably the thing. So when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Filled with fury, okay? But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. 
Okay, so this is a gross overreaction, right? This is, this is just like in chapter 1 when Queen Vashti wouldn't come and you know, all the women of the kingdom are punished. It's a similar sorts of thing. It's a gross overreaction. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, maybe some sort of dice, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, so what we're going to learn is that Haman is going to, you know, put together some sort of plot to annihilate the Jewish people, and we're going to learn more and more about this plot as the story goes on. But I think this is one of the situations where we can actually see uh, possibly the providential hand of God at work. Now, why is that? Well, they're casting lots or dice. They're doing something so that they will determine a day, hopefully by their quote-unquote gods, uh, will bless this plan to, to annihilate the Jews. Now, what we need to see here is that this won't happen for 11 months. And so if it was right away, maybe uh, Esther and Mordecai wouldn't have had time. Uh, to maybe sort of defend themselves. But as it happens, they have 11 months. So maybe this is one of the indications that um, the providential hand of God is here kind of helping. Okay, verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Again, oversimplification. Right? One guy, Mordecai, won't bow down to Haman, and they're like, well, they don't keep the king's lot, so it's a radical oversimplification in order to kind of uh, pigeonhole these people and turn the king against them. Verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may, be put, uh, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So he's like, okay, I've got this plan for annihilation for the people. We already know that the king is fairly powerful and impressionable, of course. He says, I'll give 10,000 talents of silver. Now, I tried to do some research how much money this would have been. Uh, I came up with like 327 million, but I don't think in modern Canadian dollars, but I don't even think that takes into consideration uh, inflation and everything else. So um, here's what we need to know. This amount would have been roughly the equivalent of two-thirds of the government's annual income. Two-thirds annual income, okay? And also historically, we need to know, we're not told this in the story, but uh, we know historically from other records uh, that uh, the Persians have been at war, uh, in previous war with the Greeks, so their government coffers are depleted. And so the idea of two-thirds of the annual revenue coming back into the coffers to help them after the war with the Greeks surely would have been very appealing to King Ahasuerus. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Now his instruction seems kind of strange there. It's, it's probably happening. It's, you're going to kill and annihilate them. You're going to take all their... Their, their, their plunder, their goods, so you're probably going to, you know, um, get back your 10,000 um, uh, anyway. Uh, verse 12, then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, which are like a representative, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials and all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language, so they could understand. 
It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Okay, so the, the edict goes out, and we're told it goes out on the 13th day of the first month. Now, here's the thing that we need to know, I think, which, which tells us about uh, the horror of this, that adds to the horror of this. This would have been the day before the Jewish Passover. So uh, the Passover, of course, is an annual festival uh, the Jewish people had and still have. Uh, celebrates when they were liberated or freed from slavery in Egypt. So it's a big deal. It's like their primary celebration. God is doing all this, these good things, this liberation for us, and the edict is written on the day before that. Imagine us. Imagine an edict comes out from the government. All Christians will be killed, annihilated. Men, women, children, young and old, all ages are going to be annihilated. Um, uh, people can attack you and uh, take your goods, uh, burn your churches, everything else. And the edict comes out on the day before Easter. Easter is the primary celebration of the Christian people today, right? This is the, you know, the victory of Christ, the victory over sin, death, darkness, evil, death itself. You know, can imagine an edict coming out the day before that celebration, right? And this is surely just causing havoc in everyone's minds. Verse 14, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, right? That's the capital city. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, what is going on here, right? So, so the king and Haman are there. They're, they're, they're having a drink. And, and they're like, oh, this is great. What a wonderful plan we have. And the rest of the city is in confusion. Now, why is it in confusion? Now, it doesn't specifically say, but maybe people had sympathy for some of the Jews. That is possible. Um, it might also be the case, and I think this is probably more real really what's going on here, is that they haven't been told the reason. And so if this king, who is so powerful, he's so impressionable, if he, without warning, is going to annihilate a whole group of people, what's to say that he won't do this to our people next month? I think that's probably what's going on. Chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This is rough clothing, it's a sign of mourning. And went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whenever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. She's in the palace. She doesn't know. People out in the city know, but she doesn't know. Okay? Verse 6, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, 
and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Okay, so what's happening? She, so Haman, uh, sorry, uh, Mordecai is saying, hey, hey, Esther, you need to do something about this. Our people are facing annihilation. And she's like, well, there's, you know, it, you can't just go to the king. And so we know that there are certain families and certain people who could go and have unfettered access to the king. That was not true for everybody. For everybody else, the king needed to hold out this golden scepter. Now, it's like, why is this rule? Why would this have happened? And uh, I did some research on this because I wasn't, wasn't totally sure. And the best answer that seemed most likely to me is that ancient kings were always afraid of possible assassination. Right? And so... The idea with the golden scepter is if, if the king holds out this scepter to someone, that removes the ambiguity that the guards may have had. And like, okay, there's someone there. Well, if the king wants to speak to them, they're okay. They're not a threat, right? So everyone else who is present, they might be an issue, right? But this shows the favor of, of the king. But then another layer is that Esther says, well, I haven't seen him for 30 days. So it's not like they're buddy-buddy, uh, you know, she hasn't been with him for 30 days, so like, does he not like her? Is she out of favor? We don't know, but this is a real risk um, that, that Esther highlights. Verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to, your king, uh, sorry, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Some translations say whether you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So notice what Mordecai says. He says relief and deliverance will come. He's got you know, confidence that trust will come. But he's saying, hey, Hester, maybe this is the time. Maybe, maybe you've been born for such a moment as this. Maybe this is your calling in life to respond at this particular moment. This isn't an accident. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So this is Esther's moment. She decides she is going to act. Now, she calls for a fast, and this is a three days, three nights, so a normal fast would be one day. Now, so the fact that it's three days show this is real extreme. This is a national emergency. The people are facing elimination, annihilation, extinction, okay? So uh, what, what's the deal with fasting? Fasting shows your dependence upon God, right? So it's something you do. It's a spiritual discipline that gives us insight into the spiritual realm. And so my physical need communicates my spiritual need. My physical hunger communicates my spiritual hunger. 
It's showing our utter dependence upon God. God, we are so dependent upon you. We are going to deprive ourselves of these comfort because all the comfort we need and, and, and are desperately craving is from you. So you're not having any coffee or tea in the morning. Uh, you're not having that bagel, your Fruit Loops, uh, your lunch, your hamburger, no, no beer watching the game, no, no, nothing, like nothing. Three days, three nights, they're depriving themselves to show their dependence on God. Another function of, of, of fasting has to do with discernment. You know, Esther is about to go to the king and risk her own life, and so she wants to be thinking with clarity. She wants to have the right words and make the right decisions. And so as you come into this place of, of physical weakness, here's the irony, um, you're actually gaining greater clarity of thought and strength and vision. This is part of what fasting does. And so as we are in a state of weakness, we allow the power and presence of God to come into us more fully so that we might have greater clarity and thought and vision and strength. Uh, for the living of these uh, days. And she says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. And this is not her resigning. This is, this is her like, this is her moment of courage. She's stepping up and saying, you know, if I die, oh well. This is so important. Uh, Sierra Wiley tells a story about a man who, he had a street ministry with uh, gangs. So you talk about dangerous. Uh, he was working with people in street gangs. And so quite often his life would be threatened. And here's what his incredible response would be. He'd said, you cannot threaten a man with heaven. It's like, if I die, I'm right with God. I'm, I'm going to be with my maker. So you can't threaten me. And I think this tells us something about the courage and perspective of Esther, even as she was preparing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And uh, we, we bring a con- uh, the text to a conclusion there. It's interesting. You'll notice that something happens at this moment in the story. There's a turn that happens. Up to this point, Esther listens to Mordecai. She does what he says. At this point, and from now on, Mordecai listens to everything that Esther says. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so where do we go from here in this story? I'd like to highlight a couple of the key verses, and here's the first one. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to your kingdom, the kingdom for such a time as this. So what we need to see here is that Mordecai is confident that relief and deliverance will come. Now, does he think it's going to come from God? Well, we don't know. He doesn't use the name of God. Is it going to come through another hero? But he's saying to Esther, hey, this is why you were born. And what we need to see here is providence and acting with courage. Because some people see, oh, providence, well, God's invisible hand is is working. That excuses me from acting in a certain way. I don't need to do certain things because it's going to work out. Someone else is going to do it. God's going to come along and rescue. But he's holding these two things in tension. Relief will come, but he's also summoning her to step forward. She should be the agent of courage and change, he says. And so the point we need to see is don't use providence as an excuse for inaction. Oh, God's will is going to be done anyway. I can just sit on the couch and do whatever I want. No, don't use providence as an excuse for inaction. George Washington, when he was a general at the Battle of Long Island, he was rallying his troops about the importance of freedom and the importance of this battle for future generations. He says, quote, The fate of unborn millions will now depend under God on the courage and conduct of this army. Notice what he says. It's all happening under God, but it depends on the courage of this army. 
And so this holds together this tension that, yes, God is working through human history. At the same time, God chooses in his almightiness to work through people as agents of change. So it was with Esther. Here's the next uh, verse I want to focus on. Esther gives this response to Mordecai through intermediaries. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She agrees to help and she demonstrates courage. And I want to highlight something that shows uh, the depth of her courage, something that is very neglected. is the fact that Esther does this in the midst of incredible Incredible aloneness. She is so alone. Think of it. She doesn't have biological parents anymore. We learn that. Her parents, we don't know what happened to them. They're gone. Mordecai comes in, you know, adopts her, basically takes care of her. While she is a young virgin, she is taking into this uh, horrific kind of beauty pageant into the court of King Ahasuerus, acquired or compelled to do Terrible things. She is separated from her people, her customs, her way of life. Um, There's an expression that sometimes people are lonely in a crowd. I kind of wonder if that wouldn't have been the case for Esther. Lonely in the crowd. And here are the issues, and she does have some contact with Mordecai, but notice that even in today's dialogue, it's through intermediaries. This is a national crisis and personal crisis, and she can't even see this one man who's been her adopted father in the face. But even though she's experiencing all this aloneness, she decides to act. She says, if I perish, I perish. Now, she could have tried to conceal her identity. Remember a couple times in the story, she's already like, you know, Mordecai says, you know, don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. So she could have tried to keep doing that, to keep hiding. But despite her aloneness, she acts out in courage. If I perish, I perish. And one of the things that we take from this is that this is what courage is. It's doing the right thing, even when there is danger or difficulty. It's doing the right thing, even when there's danger or difficulty. So what I would like to do is leave us with this idea straight from the mouth of Mordecai, right into your hearts and minds in our modern day, that you are born for such a time as this. You are born for such a time as this. Now, are your people facing physical annihilation? No. Um, Are you in a royal harem? No. But there are unique relationships and events in your life. Maybe it's right now. Maybe something God has planned for you. Maybe in a couple years from now that you will be required to demonstrate great faithfulness and courage. You were born for such a time as this. Some people say, I was born for another time. I should have been born in the pioneer days or I should have been born in France in the 1800s or something. No, no, no. You were born for this time. It's not an accident. It's not random as people out in the world suggest. God's people are chose, the book of Ephesians tells us, before the foundation of the world. In Psalm 139, we read about God creating you while you are in the womb of your mother. You're being created for specifically for this time. The Lord brought you into existence in this time on earth and in this time and place in history. It's not an accident. You were born for such a time as this. What if God wanted witnesses to speak his truth and to show his incredible, beautiful love in a world that is drowning in its own darkness? 
What if God wanted men and women and grandpas and grandmas and kids and boys and girls to build homes and houses and households and relationships on the word of God and faithfulness and courage so much so that this will lay the foundation for future generations? What if God wanted someone with vision and a hope so high, higher than the tallest building on earth, to share that hope with a with the next generation who is coming up, so many of whom struggle with anxiety and depression and despair? What if there was some great injustice in the world and God wanted someone to step forward and say and do something, even at great personal cost to themselves, but to show the great mercy and beauty of God? What if God wanted to ad- someone to address the pandemic of loneliness? which is ravaging so many people. And what if God wanted that person just to come alongside some people and be family to them? What if God wanted someone in the church of Jesus Christ who is under continual assault for their beliefs and actions, someone to show faith and courage as the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of a new time so that the good news of Christ would radiate from us like a beacon of hope for generations yet to be born. Now, perhaps there's another scenario in your life. Maybe it's this year, maybe it's next year, maybe it's five years from now. And it will require faith and courage from you. Perhaps no one will know about this thing except you and God. But you were born for such a time as this. Maybe it'll be big. Maybe it'll be small. But relief and deliverance will come from somewhere. Remember Mordecai? Relief and deliverance will come from somewhere. That somewhere could be a someone. What if you were born for such a time as this? Um, In her book, uh, No Greater Love, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, I thoroughly believe that God directs my life, but rarely does he let me see the script. I thoroughly believe that God directs my life, but rarely does he let me see the script. That is true. We don't always know what is happening, but we know who it is happening with. And because of that, we can have courage, just like Esther. She was born for such a time as this, and so are you. Amen.